Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, it is with great privilege that we gather here today on this dreary Lord's Day, but at the same time, with just as much expectation of meeting you here as any other Sunday, because the the truth of, of this gathering and its worthwhile on an eternal scale is not because of our preparation or our worthiness or our performance, but because of your faithfulness. We thank you for Sunday, for church, for gathering together, for Christmas. Lord, for the grace we have through Christ Jesus, for the truth of the words we've been able to sing and the truth from the Word of God that we'll study as we open our Bibles here in just moments. I ask, Lord, that you... Give us what is necessary to take full advantage of our time at your feet and our time with each other, as both are precious. And Lord, with the days ahead and the celebration of Christmas, may our mind and our gaze be first on you. And Lord, may this be a Christmas to always remember during a year where you've taught us a great deal where things were much different than we expected but Lord may it reverberate in eternity for your glory and not our own we ask all this in your precious name Amen well as always it's good to see each of you and it looks as if there are more of you than usual I was nervous I have to say at the beginning because this side seemed to load first And I thought there might be a worry of our capsizing if it didn't level out quickly. But it sure is good to see you. And for the rest of you that are joining us by way of live stream, we're glad to have you as well. This is the day that the Lord has made. It is the Sunday before Christmas. And I see lots of red and a little less green. But um, we're looking forward to this. And uh, before we turn in our Bibles to the passage that we're going to study today, let me give you at least a word on our plans for Christmas Eve. We had planned, this was more than a month ago, uh, to forego our regular traditional Christmas gathering on Christmas Eve in this room only because we could not see how we could accommodate everybody. It is the service that's most attended uh, of the whole year. And out of an abundance of caution then, we thought, well, we'll meet out in the yard. Uh, We'll put the tree out there too. We can spread out and we can do this as safely as we can in the outdoors. And we'll make it short. And uh, we'll stand. We'll let others park if they want to watch from their cars. But as it stands right now, it's forecasted to rain. And uh, I remember... This would be a couple of years ago. It was was right after I got here. Somebody handed me a piece of paper and said, this is a prayer request. You pray for this in the service. And it just said rain. So we've prayed for rain before. And we kind of said with half a smile last week, pray for good weather. But the truth of it is, the Lord knows about all this. He's the one that brings the rain. And it's His birthday that we're celebrating. And if He wants to providentially for us to stay home I think it's probably wisdom rather than try to find another option to work around what we know he's going to do no matter what we'll just trade in our gathering next Friday Christmas Eve, that's Thursday actually 
um, at 6 o'clock. If it's raining, we won't be able to have our meeting. But I'd encourage you to turn that into a call to prayer. Wherever you are at 6 o'clock, pray for this church. Pray for each other. Pray for the coming year, 2021. We're going to get a new one soon. And I have no idea if it's going to be any different than the one we're in now. What help we're going to need from God. Uh, Pray for our faithfulness, continued faithfulness to do the basics for His glory. As we've been trying to do the best we can with what we've got right where we are. So I'd encourage you to do that. Don't know what Thursday will bring. We'll see. And if it looks like we can call it a few hours out, we'll send an email and put it on the website. But uh, it's going to be a good Christmas either way. Whether we're together or we're apart, we can be united in prayer otherwise if need be. But that's the plans for Christmas Eve. And uh, we shall see. But for now, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, Matthew chapter 2 is where we find... Matthew's record of the birth of Christ, it actually goes from half of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Uh, Luke gives us a birth account. Mark and John get right to business with Jesus and his public ministry. But uh, I want to read this to you and then we'll pray. And I think it best to read the whole chapter. It'll take us a while to get through it. But it's Christmas time. It'll sound right. It'll sound like Christmas. This is familiar to each of us. And then we'll study at least one aspect of it. But this begins, verse 1, second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so is written by the prophet. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help, even with this familiar passage of Scripture, to do two things, to understand what it means and to be obedient to what it implies. Lord, thank you so much for time together as a family. On a Sunday before Christmas, we put the rest of the week And what will be done or not done in your hands and your providence. May we be found faithful. And may we be good students of the time you've given us. Here and now. In your name. Amen. Well, What we've got here is the famous account from Matthew's gospel. Which is actually unique to Matthew's account. Put another way, you won't find anything written about the wise men or Herod and his murder of the innocent children in the other gospel accounts, but only here. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience. Uh, Mark wrote to the Romans. Luke wrote to the Greeks. John had a varied audience. But with Matthew, as a Jew, writing to Jews, his main objective was to explain to them that Jesus of Nazareth actually fulfills all the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And you'll see that in the chapter that we just read. There were four specific times that he stopped what he was saying in order to say this fulfills what was said by the prophet. And on through the book, it's the same way to just build the point layer by layer. He is the Messiah. Well, with the story here early in the record, wise men that were magicians from Eastern lands had come to Jerusalem asking the question, where is the king? Specifically, where is the king born, king of the Jews? Which is a totally different way to consider such a thing. Most kings are appointed or they are anointed or maybe by conquest. But born king, that's different. That's exactly what is said here. And the ruler of Judea, Herod, King Herod, Herod the Great, is where the story gets interesting. 
because there can only be one king at a time. And when Herod got wind of this, he summoned these wise men secretly to learn more about the star, specifically the timing of the star. That was of most importance to him because he was going to make sure that this young child, born king of the Jews, never saw his throne. He had plans to get rid of him. So we're quite familiar with this chapter. On Wednesday evenings uh, in the years we've shared together, I try to make an effort to look at some of the more obscure corners of the Christmas story to make sure that we have uh, equal knowledge of both what we've known since we were little children and then what doesn't typically get taught on a Christmas Sunday morning or Christmas Sunday school. This, though, is about as familiar as it gets. But I would add that this is probably one of the places that is in most danger of being colored up as far as our familiarity, not by good Bible study, but by tradition over the years and by certain Christmas carols that took poetic license with what we've got here. I'll mention this just because you know that's what I like to do. (laughs) And then we'll move on. But even though our nativity scenes, like the one that's on uh, the top of the piece of furniture that houses all our school curriculum in our living room, it's a multi-purpose room. We do a lot of living and homeschooling in that room. But there's a manger scene that was Corey's mother's. And it's got there the wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph as if it all happened on the same night. Likely, most likely, this happened sometime later, up to two years later, if you take into account what Herod has just said. And just to mention that lovely carol, We Three Kings, takes a lot of artistic liberty. Because though we read in black and white what we just saw here, the only thing we're sure that there were three of were three gifts. Now it makes sense that in a pageant or a manger scene, if you got three gifts, you need three kings. But then that's problematic too because they weren't kings. They were magicians. Astrologers to be more precise. Though it is quite possible that this was a delegation by kings, that these magicians were the king's counselors. So it's not as if you have to go rearrange your manger scene. Maybe distance the three wise men and their camels from the rest by, I don't know, a little bit of a journey or something. But here's the point with this familiar story. I want to look at one aspect of it, and that's in verses 3, 4, and 5. To ask some questions of some things that perhaps inquiring minds as they read through Scripture would would want to know that we should know, that we should understand and we should obey. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, assembling the chief priests, scribes, the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. The number of things jump out there. One is which the chief priests and the scribes of the people got it right when inquired by their pagan king. 
This is 30 years prior to a crucifixion or so, 30, 33 years. But they knew what to expect. But what's this business about Herod the king being troubled? That should make sense enough. Only one king at one time. But what does it mean that all Jerusalem with him was troubled? Makes sense that one would be, but it's kind of strange to think that the group of people who have been awaiting their Messiah for generations would be troubled to hear that he might have arrived. So what does it mean when Herod heard these things he was troubled? Further, what does it mean that all Jerusalem was troubled with him? That Herod was troubled is understandable. By definition, king is an exclusive position. No king shares his kingdom. And you can imagine that if there are rumors that get back to King Herod, that men are asking, where is the king of the Jews? And they're not referring to Herod, then Herod has a problem. And it looks as if there's a lot he doesn't know about. So he does some inquiry and begins to plot as to how to take care of this. Let me give you a little background on this man, Herod, Herod the Great, King Herod, the bad guy of the Christmas story. Some might actually say that uh, the, the innkeeper would be another bad guy. I'm not so sure he was a bad guy. The place was full. And we talked about how that uh, is a little different. That when we read the day, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She probably didn't ride into town in labor. We look at the Easter story. We've certainly got Judas and Pilate and Caiaphas. Caiaphas. There's, there's bad guys in these stories. But let's not look at it like good guys, bad guys. This is the makings of all good stories. Let's look at what we've got. This was actual history. Who is this man, King Herod? And why does Matthew tell this part of the story when no one else does? Herod was an Edomite. If you know your Old Testaments, you're familiar with Edom and what that means. They later, their descendants converted to Judaism, but their, their, as far as their blood goes, they were not Jewish. They wouldn't have been, like Paul would say, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Though for some it looked as if he was a good stand-in, for others he wasn't one of them at all. Uh, he was raised Jewish, however. His rise to power had much to do with his father's relationship with Julius Caesar. We know who he is, though it was actually Mark Antony. You may remember Mark Antony from history class. That was Cleopatra's boyfriend. It was Mark Antony that appointed Herod and his brother as tetrarchs in the area of Judea. But actually, a surprise to most of the people, it was the Roman Senate later that gave Herod his title king of Judea. Now, Herod was known best as probably the, the best architect, the best builder of Middle Eastern history. And if you've been to Israel, many of you have, you've seen the remains of many of his projects. You've seen Caesarea by the sea, which was this miraculous way at that time, though just a mechanical way to work with the currents as the Mediterranean gave them, to have the currents flow such that it dredged it with sand rather than filled it with sand. They always had problems of the harbor there filling up. Herod fixed that and built a massive aqueduct to bring fresh water into his 
residence there that he had at Caesarea by the sea. There was the second temple or Herod's temple as it's referred to where people of that day would say you haven't seen a beautiful building unless you've seen Herod's temple. It was a massive undertaking and very beautiful. And that was the place that everybody was so fascinated with that Jesus happens to pass by and say there won't be one stone left on another. And if you've been on the Israel trip, in addition to those things, which there's not much of left, there's a whole lot left at Masada, which is probably the most breathtaking of them all. That was his winter vacation home, complete with a working steam bath. But you feel like you're on a mountain on the surface of the moon. There's, there's nothing out there. But he had everything he needed and everything for a group of Jews to hold off the invading Romans after the city had been destroyed around 70 A.D. for some time. So, intriguing story that goes along there. Herod the Great was responsible for all these things. But because of these massive building campaigns, which he was very good at, came along with those things a very massive ego. And along with a massive ego came a massive sense of... Uh, I, I guess you would call it paranoia to protect what he had and his reputation and the fact that there were others who might fit his job a lot better than him and were actually Roman. So he lived as if everyone was out to get him. All these things together, massive buildings, massive ego, massive paranoia is a recipe for a very cruel relationship with people who got in his way. And the stories of these are quite gruesome. And here's where I think is probably the best answer to the question why all Judea or Jerusalem was troubled along with him. The rumors of there being competition for King Herod probably struck fear into the hearts of everyone who were afraid of what he might do as a result. So... The slaughter of the innocents, as it's known in history. Uh, the killing of all the Hebrew boys in Bethlehem surrounding the villages, uh, two years old and under, is again only found in Matthew's gospel in the Bible, but it's actually found nowhere else in extra-biblical history. Um, and that kind of poses a problem. We do know a great deal about Herod from extra-biblical means. There's a lot said. And there's a lot we know since 2007 when we dug that man up. They found him where he was buried and learned all kinds of things that were kept secret for a very long time. It's worth a Google. There's information how that man died. And it was gruesome. And it was awful. And you almost feel like, good for them. He deserved it. But as far as what we've got in print, for historians who'd rather not include the Bible as historically, basically they're left to say Matthew just made this up. And we don't believe that Matthew just made any of this up. It's inspired scripture based off historical fact. But comparatively speaking, here's the, the rub. If no one else mentioned the, the slaughter of the innocents, then it probably was made up. If the Bible's the only place it's found, then really it's not that reliable. Truth is, in comparison to the other atrocities that this man's name is on, the killing of 15 or 20 
Hebrew boys really didn't grab headlines, especially in any of the Roman papers. What difference would that make? Now, as far as this man's personal life and how he handled business, he had ten wives. Lots of people had lots of wives, but he killed two of them, and one of them was supposed to be his favorite. Uh, that was before he actually killed her brother, his brother-in-law, at a pool party that he threw for himself and invited him to for that purpose. He killed three of his sons in cold blood because they posed a threat to his throne. So again, what difference does it make for a king to kill someone else's sons that are under two years old if he's quite happy to kill his own if it gets in his way? All this colors up the story that Matthew's giving us. History tells us that when he knew he was at the end of his life, that he decreed that a member of all the families of Israel's populace, especially his detractors, be gathered up and killed in the arena on the day he died. For two reasons. One, that no one would celebrate his death. And two, that everyone would mourn. That's how much he loathed the people that he taxed to build his buildings and maintain his power. The irony is, if Herod had known his own future, he wouldn't have had to worry about this one born king of the Jews. Because by the time he died in 4 A.D. or so, this young child would have been 4, 5, 6 or so. What trouble would that have caused him? But this slaughter of the innocents, that's what it's called, was a search-and-destroy mission. Herod brought all his resources to bear, not to obliterate an enemy's military installation or to find some weapons cache or destroy a band of soldiers that had invaded. It was after babies, protected only by their mother's arms. That's who Herod the Great was. So the question we're left with... Why did Matthew include this part of the story? That's always what I think to be a great question. Why is this here? What helps us know more about Jesus? And why he's here? By the way, the men that spent so long with him told us the story about his birth. Now, if you recall, it's been about two weeks ago. On a Wednesday evening, we studied the first 18 verses. The genealogy, the, the exciting genealogy of Jesus from Abraham down to Joseph and Mary. And we learned then that if Jesus is the light of the world come to expose sin, and if he's the Lamb of God who's to take away the sin of the world, then what purpose does it serve to give us this long genealogy that is shot through with the very thing that he'd come here to take away. When you talk about those women that were there, those are the ones that seem to key in on the awful stories of Israel's moral failings. From the patriarch's family, Judah, the son of Jacob, and Tamar, or King David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It's to remind them exactly what he's here for. To take away what had invaded even his own lineage. I do believe the same is true here. To show us a picture of this 
bad man is only to darken the backdrop against which the light of the world is to be revealed. That's how one makes a dramatic point. I think that's what's going on here. Matthew is revealing to us something about whom Jesus is and what he came to do. So here in chapter 2, the emphasis is not on Jesus front and center. Not yet. The front and center stage is on Herod. Maybe the wise men. Back and forth for a bit. Jesus is here for our sin. We know that. Herod will showcase the malignancy of sin. In perhaps a way we've never seen. And maybe perhaps a way we wouldn't think of first. Herod's going to show us not only his sin, but our sin. You say, how's Herod going to show me my sin? His sin is exceedingly sinful. Well, because none of us would put ourselves in the category of Herod or Hitler or Judas or any of the other guys. We're we're very prone to organizing things. Uh, Good guys and bad guys and really bad guys and really, really bad guys and terrible, awful, no good, really bad guys. We want to separate ourselves from them as if we're different from them, but the this, this sad truth is the Bible looks at it all the same. There's no difference as far as a sinner is concerned and as far as what amount of sin is required to make one unrighteous before God and worthy of the punishment for sin, which is death. One sin is enough. So the full teaching of the Bible is that the world's source of evil is every human heart. From the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That wasn't just for the likes of Herod. That was for all of us. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 3, verse 23. You know this from the Romans road, as you call it. How's it go? For all have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. All of us. A few verses earlier in verse 10, as it is written. And listen to this and tell me who this seems to apply to. There's none righteous. No, not one. Okay, we know that. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Well, that sounds like what he said in 23. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace. We're talking about peace today. Fourth week of Advent. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sounds like this is talking about that group of really, really bad guys like Herod, right? That would be wrong. All have turned aside. Paul's talking about every last man, woman, and child. All of us. Now the contrast seems to be glaring. I don't know that anyone in this room is guilty of murder on the likes of King Herod. But we would be we'd be dangerously close to shipwreck to think that that massive difference is going to amount to our being 
treated differently in eternity based on our sin account before a holy God. The reader might say, all right, I get what is being said by Romans, Paul wrote, and by what Matthew is saying, and what John said when Jesus said that no one comes to the Father unless he is drawn, that no one comes to the Father but through me. But you, you look at this, and you almost think like this medicine's too strong. You might buy none is righteous because no one's perfect, but none seeks after God. Because that's usually where we want to start justifying ourselves. Well, I'm in church, aren't I? Sunday before Christmas. There are a lot of more people in churches on this Sunday. And one in the spring. We all know how that works. But to think that we seek after God. Don't you want to think that you seek after God? I want to think that I seek after God. The only problem is Paul is saying in Scripture that I can't do that. So how do I answer in my head that what he says is not at all like what I feel I should get credit for. And theologians have struggled with this just like anyone because it talking, it's talking to them too. I don't, I don't care if you're a, a, a historical theologian. Paul is saying the same thing. No, you don't seek after God. You're drawn to God by the first move of His grace in your life. Then you're off to the races. But not until. So how does this work? How do you account for millions of people gathered in churches today? Are they all saved and redeemed as God changed them? What about the people who don't know Him yet? What about the people whose lives are messed up and they want something fixed? Turn over a new leaf. Looks like there's some seeking going on. Well, here's what the theologians have given as far as options, perhaps. One is they just want what God gives. Just like some kids this time of year only want what their grandparents are bringing with them on the trip. Right? I don't really want to spend time with them. I just want the present. You could say that there are people like that as well. And the way America has been pitching church for years now, that Jesus is basically a life enhancement. You just come to Jesus and all your stuff will be sorted out. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it's offered. And the results of... Doing church that way may, in the end, look more like a gathering of gold diggers who marry for money or attention rather than for what truly God came here to do. That's one option. The other is, well, nobody seeks after God the way He really is, but plenty of people seek after the God they'd like to make for themselves or hope He would be like. A God of their own making. They cherry-pick through the Scriptures, a little of this, a little of that, and don't want any of that over there. The truth of it is there's a lot of that going on. Let me read to you something. I brought a book with me. Before I do, though none of us would put ourselves in the same boat with Herod. Okay, we've established that point so far. The Bible says we're just as much a sinner and just as self-centered. Right? Paul takes care of that through the Romans road. If you want to be king and someone comes along and says that he is king, then someone's going to need to get out of the way because there can only be one king. 
So King Herod's reaction to Jesus could be seen, I think it is meant to be seen from this passage, as a way to show us ourselves. This is Tim Keller, his book on Christmas. Hidden Christmas is its name. He discusses this point of Herod. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centered and self-righteousness and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us, our needs and desires. We do not want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. And every heart then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. I think he's right. It's a hard lesson to learn. It's part of the Christmas story we wouldn't necessarily want to look at. If you were to keep reading through Romans, in chapter 5, we've got this wondrous description of what Jesus came to do. To reconcile us to God. To establish peace where there was war. And that's through the redemption that He provides on the cross. That's Romans chapter 5. But then in 6 through 8, almost as if to backpedal, He describes a residual hostility that we will deal with every day until we see Him in glory. That even though we've been redeemed, that there is peace between us and the Father, there are remnants of this very thing that got on us all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And there's been a glory war and, uh, since. Who's king? Who's in charge? Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? You can have all, all of these trees except the one that's mine. devil comes along and says, you know what? It really is a good thing. He has said that it's bad, but it's really good. What do Adam and Eve decide? To let God be God? Or to take charge and make that decision for themselves? I'll be in charge of that. That's setting up one's own little throne. In the face of a God who's clearly your God when you're clearly His creation. Romans 7, here's right out of Paul's mouth. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So it seems that Paul thinks there's a little bit of Herod living in him. So the question, this is where we'll leave it today. Where is the real king? Who is the real king? That question was not only a disturbing question to the ears of King Herod. It's the most disturbing question you could ever ask the human heart. Um... I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Because along with our fallen nature is this propensity to cover all of that up. To feel charitable. To, to want to be kind. To want to serve others. But at the same time, at the end of the day, who's in charge? Where's the glory? Have you ever met a child... who always positioned themselves behind others 
who never asserted themselves, who never wanted anything for themselves or wanted to be first. No. They start out crying when they're hungry. And then when they learn to talk, they learn mama, daddy, and mine. That's usually the... Sometimes they learn that word first. And as we grow up, we never grow out of that. And if there's anything good in this in us, it's only because of the grace of Jesus. But as depraved humanity, we want what we want. This is, this is a depravity check for Christmas, is what this passage is telling us. Every heart wants to remain on the throne of their lives. But here's the implication, the ramifications of this wonderful Christmas story. It's not going to end on a negative note. If the Son of God really was born into this world, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John claim, Paul in the New Testament, then we've lost the right to be in charge of our lives. That is, of course, if we want salvation. Because that's the deal. What was lost in the garden was our relationship with God. When man and woman were sinless... And the relationship was pure. After sin entered the picture, it was broken. And as broken, it cannot be fixed from their end. The story of Christmas and Easter is that Jesus came to earth in order to do what you can't do for yourselves. And repair the relationship as the Prince of Peace. To broker peace between God and His wrath against sin by paying for that sin Himself. The only caveat, the deal, is you have to worship Him as King. He's the true King. No matter if you're you or you're Herod, it's all the same. Where is the King? Now we've been talking about peace And I already mentioned, the Prince of Peace is the one who can end the war, the glory war. Whose glory do I live for? We were made to worship something. We'll worship something. Will it be the true God of the universe? Or will we live in a state of cosmic treason against Him? Where Herod lived. That's the question. We were made to worship and worship something. Back to that portion of Romans This would be in verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. That's the lost person who doesn't know Jesus. Jesus came to bring us peace. That's the candle we light today. Peace. And the song we're going to sing after I light this candle and pray. O little town of Bethlehem. If you'll notice, veiled in the first verse is a mental picture of dark streets. Where a light shines. But by the third and fourth verse. Openly talking about the sin. That he's here to take away. Before you can receive Jesus. As the king he came to be. You've got to understand your sin. And if you're always looking at folks like Herod. As the epitome of sin. But that's not me. That would be a fatal error. Of eternal consequences. He's here for all our sins. As the prince peace.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Advent, your coming, and the expectation of your second coming. We thank you for peace. We thank you for love and joy and hope. We have each of these because you took the opposite. You took our war. You know what it's like to hear, to feel the rejection of your Father, to say, why hast thou forsaken me? So that we don't have to be forsaken. Lord, burn these things into our heads and our hearts. May Christmas be so bathed in these truths and concepts that we just can't turn from them. Lord, may we not waste our Christmas just on getting together, exchanging gifts, eating food, wasting time. But Lord, if it's just us that we need to preach to, to preach to ourselves, this year, even this year, is not wasted. Thank you for a service like this. Thank you for a church like this. Thank you for a group of people like this. But thank you so much for salvation like this. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.